You are listening to Subtle Disruptors Melbourne. This is the first series of the podcast, Subtle Disruptors, telling the stories of those who are quietly having an amazing positive impact on their city and the world. If, if we all kind of really, really sort of strip everything back, at our essence, we're all one being. We're all, we've all come from one, one being. And so m- multiculturalism to me is, is, is actually an expression of creativity and beauty. Diversity is the word that comes to mind as I reflect on my conversation with this week's guest. In itself, our conversation was quite diverse, covering music, multiculturalism, corporate, social and environmental responsibility, and interpreting. My guest has a diverse and extensive range of skills and experience. But as I look a little deeper, I see that diversity was a common theme running through each of the things we discussed as well. About hearing from those who need help speaking. About celebrating all the expressions of what it means to be human about bringing all the voices to the table to discuss the pressing matters we are facing as a planet. I'm Adam Murray, and thanks for joining me as I talk with Shalini Samuel about the subtle disruption of diversity. Well, Shalini, do you want to start by talking about where we are today? Yeah, sure. Okay, so this is the Palace Cinema Como in South Yarra. Um, and the reason that I brought you here today was because is because... Um, this is a place that I used to come and um, play the piano just over there on a Friday night um, when people had finished up work and they were, they, some, some, some people came out here to just lounge and hang out with other people yeah, and right. chit-chat and other people came to watch movies. Yeah. And um, you know, it's, it's kind of my local crowd um, and yeah, it was just a way of debriefing from the week and um, you know kind of releasing everything all the spiritual battles that went on during the week or whatever there was that was going on and um, yeah I just felt really um, this was this was one of the places that I used to come and feel very at home yeah yeah I can imagine people just coming and hanging out here and listening to some music and then I guess there's a bit of a bar and a cafe there where people can just yeah, get a drink and exactly hang out yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, yeah, and the films that they show are just really interesting as well. I mean, you know, not to not to spend too much time plugging plugging the place or anything, but <laughs> but the fact that it's a place for international film festivals, and I love the whole idea of multiculturalism. So yeah, so that actually makes a lot of sense to me too. Yeah, um, and I'm really happy that when when I started in you know like the, the whole side world of gigging, um, that 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 this was a place that I ended up in because of that international flavor. Yeah. Yeah, I, li- I like being around people who are open to international things. Yeah. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense to me. Hmm. There's a whole, you've given me a whole lot of hooks there to start <laughs> talking about. <laughs> but before I, before I latch on to any of them, yeah. do you, um, is there a particular night when you were here that sticks you in your mind, like a particular performance or experience? Um, there are two, just when you said that, there are two that stick in my mind. One of them was um, an, a night where I actually came in very heavy-hearted. And I came in very heavy-hearted because that morning at about 6 in the morning, I got called to a police station where I, um, it was all a little bit sort of secretive initially. And when I got in, um, they got me to sit down, they opened an envelope and they pulled out um, a note and it was a it was a suicide note that a 14 year old boy had written before he had basically self-harmed yeah and um, 
that note um, was to his family and it talked all about um, how he was ter terrified that he'd never be able to live up to their expectations. And I knew that I had to play that night. Um, and, yeah, I mean, that, that left with me, that left something with me that, yeah, I can't explain really. But I knew I actually had to play that night and, um, and I just felt like, how am I going to, how am I going to, you know, do this? I really don't want to see anybody. I just kind of want to hang by myself yeah. and process this thing yeah. because it's pretty awful. Um, and I ended up uh, going, like, at the end of the day, I ended up going home before coming here and I pulled out this song that's um, by a, a songwriter named Alanis Morissette. Uh, people may have heard, have heard of her. I mean, she sings some pretty yeah. heavy, heavy going stuff. And one of her songs is called Perfect, and it actually expresses that very thing. Um, some, uh, some of the words include, sometimes it's never quite enough. Um, if I'm, um, unless I'm perfect, um, I won't be loved. That sort of, that's those sorts of lyrics. Yeah. And I felt that um, if I learned that song and brought it here that night, I could actually have a really honest experience in the space. Yeah. And so that's exactly what I did. So I, I learned that song and I brought it here and it was just the, just the very thing that I think I personally needed to, to get through that particular incident. Yeah, particular wow. yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so there you go. That's one of them. Um, the other one was the very first time I played here. It was on Valentine's Day. Yeah. And um, I remember pulling out a few great Adele tunes <laughs> with um, a cellist. I had a cellist with me and, and um, we ended up playing a duo. And um, during one of the songs, people were actually lining up to, to see the movies. Um, perfect time, Valentine's Day. Yeah. And I saw this couple um, standing and talking to each other. And, and at one point, the, the, the man turned around and looked over at the piano and the cello and then turned back and just very gently put his arm on the back of his his wife I believe and it was just a really beautiful moment it was it was like he he felt the experience of the romance that was in in the music yeah. and yeah and that that also for me is a bit unforgettable yeah. like just seeing that I thought that was just really lovely yeah, mm. wow. yeah. <laughs> so there you go not quite how you expected to start this off given that this wasn't what we were going to talk about to start with <laughs> But that's what, yeah, those are, uh, like, the space for me, and because music for me is just so all-encompassing. Um, what do you mean by all-encompassing? As in, you can go anywhere. Yeah. Um, you know, it doesn't have to be one thing. There's no pigeonholing. You, 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 can, you can play, it's like a language. You, it's, it's like words or numbers. You can pretty much create any equation with it mm. and create any experience with it, depending on what's going on. Yeah. and what there is and oftentimes it's human experience and so you know and it's a shared experience so somebody will get something out of whatever you're doing yeah mm. did you ever get like you're talking about a bit of indirect feedback there I suppose about your playing did you ever get any direct feedback in this kind of setting from people coming up and saying you know that was amazing <laughs> or thank you so much or, or was it not really that kind of no, um, yeah. people would come up, yeah, yeah, three or four times a night, actually. Right. We would have different people come up. Maybe we had regulars coming after a while. Yeah. Um, but I only played once or twice a month, so it really kind of depended on, you know, um, what night I was playing and who was around. But yeah. um, there were definitely, I think, every single time that we 
we played, there would be people coming up and that also kept us going. It kept us feeling like, you know, this is something that's actually, yeah, it's actually probably something that we should be doing yeah. at this time. Yeah. Um, yeah, we had couples come up and say, will you play for my 50th? Will you, um, you know, can I, can I grab your details for my engagement party? And, you know, yeah. You know, yeah. It's, yeah, it's a good space. Yeah, um, it is. Mm. Um, to go back to your first story then as well, why were you called to that police station? Why did they call you? Okay, um, so I, for about 10 years from 2004, I worked as a, a Mandarin interpreter and translator, and um, I do that still, um, about two or three days a week, yeah. for various, in various settings, so hospitals, courts, police, community health, maternal and child health, immigration, um, sometimes business conferences, just depending on what I get called to schools, parent-teacher interviews. Yeah, Anything. really. Yeah, yeah, yeah really, really. Um, yeah, so so I run around the community and just sit there and basically make sure that people can understand each other. <laughs> yeah. So on that particular occasion, um, the, the police Part of their due diligence process was to actually make sure that they had somebody who was who was accredited to actually look look at that note yeah. and certify that 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 was what it said, yeah. just in case it was a clue that, to something else. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So that's why that's why I was there. Yeah. Mm. And you're still doing this, I believe. Is that I right? am. Yeah. I am. I'm doing it two or three days a week. I actually can't. Uh, I actually find it extremely rewarding. Yeah. Um, so when I'm not doing it, I actually miss it. Yeah. So no matter what I do, I, I do feel like I need to at least spend one or two days a week yeah. at least somewhat involved. Yeah. Yeah. Because you just get to see so many things that uh, are, are hidden from normal view. Yeah. Um, yeah, you get to uh, interact with so many interesting people. And, and the, most, the best part of it is that you get to um, be with people when they're going through their toughest situations. That for me is probably a big, big thing. Yeah. So it's not really, it's not only helping people understand each other. It's also a little bit more than that as well, it seems. Yeah, yeah it becomes more than that. So yeah. professionally speaking, um, an interpreter is meant to be like a conduit um, between two people. So you're meant to be almost like just this invisible fly on the wall that just makes sure that communication goes through and not interrupt that communication. Yeah. Inevitably, when um, somebody from a different culture experiences that finally they have somebody who understands what they're saying, you become their friend, mm. inevitably, mm. Um, in that moment and in that situation. And that's, um, and that's something all interpreters have to navigate at different points in time in, in our roles. Um, sometimes you can be a, a place that people vent too as well um, and that has you know has its consequences for interpreters as well and those are, those are all the different sort of uh, but but it's all a function of the fact that for the first time somebody or, or for one of the first times somebody feels like they can be understood when they need to be understood yeah by somebody else so I mean I see yeah I see that as part and parcel of the process I think when early on when I first started I had very little compassion for that I used to get really annoyed um, with my clients, I used to think, you know, you, I'm here to do a job. Let me be be a professional and stop trying to, you know, delve into things that have got nothing to do with what we're here about. 
Um, but I traveled um, in 2007 on my own to France, um, to Nice and Paris and to Rome. Um, and I couldn't speak a word of Italian or French, right? <laughs> and boy, was that hard. And all of a sudden, my compassion level just went like straight up, shot yeah. through the roof. Um, and I came back, I was a very different interpreter after that. Yeah. But, yeah. <laughs> but for a period of time there, I was really quite, um, yeah. <laughs> I, was, I was ready to just go off at the next person who was going to tell me their life story. Yeah. <laughs> In terms of people doing that venting stuff that you were talking about, yeah. do you, is there a, a, a bit of professional liberty there where you sometimes remove the expletives from what people are saying or kind of <laughs> cut out a bit of what they're saying to convey the emotional truth of what they're saying? <laughs> that is too funny. What a great question. Um, okay, so that's a bit of a journey and you know, I think every interpreter will do this a little bit differently and there is no perfect way of doing it. But um, when you're trained, to do to do the job you're yeah. trained to interpret word for word including the expletives right yeah <laughs> when it, when you're actually you know standing in a courtroom in front of a judge and you know lawyers and you know other professionals plus other criminals or whatever it is and you're interpreting for for somebody who's been accused of something horrendous and they start swearing yeah um it might be a slightly different story. Like, <laughs> you can't actually, I mean, some of the stuff that you could say, you wouldn't say yeah. <laughs> in those situations, I think. So what I tend to do in those particular situations is I say to, um, I say, this is the nature of the language that's coming out um, at this point. So I just kind of break that flow a little bit and I say, this is, okay. this is what's yeah. being said, or this is the type of language that's being used. Um, and sometimes people say, can you say exactly what's been said? And sometimes they say, okay, I get, I get your point. Because I think most people can see it in the energy of the person as that person's sort of temper rises before they start going off. Um, you can already kind of tell what's coming out <laughs> in any language. <laughs> Body language doesn't change that much. No, and yeah. tone of voice yeah. and volume yeah. <laughs> doesn't change that much. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but on the other side of that, though, I've had situations where um, English speakers, um, when they speak to a person who doesn't speak their language, instead of realizing that you know you've got an interpreter who's actually interpreting what you're saying, they think that by speaking more loudly in English and more assertively and more aggressively, <laughs> yes. that the message is then going to be understood. And, um, and I've had a, a Chinese client who's at one point thought that they were being sweared at because the person was their voice and their, their tone and they were getting impatient about not being understood while not giving the interpreter a chance to do their job. So, but that was, that was a funny situation where I had to explain, no, he's not swearing at you. I <laughs> <laughs> think this will help yes. you understand. <laughs> and it's an education process for people because, you know, um, so there, I've had people call us interrupters, they've called us misinterpreters, <laughs> <laughs> you know, all sorts of things, because, because people don't really know how to work with us sometimes. And, you know, yeah. and, and then when you find somebody who's worked with interpreters a lot, it then becomes a really, really smooth process. But yeah. it's a lot of give and take. Because I like the conversation that we're having now um, is not possible in an interpreted situation. Mm. There'd be too many stop starts and you'd have yeah. to f work out how to create a flow Mm. Um, in that conversation while stop starts are happening. Yeah. And I think good interpreters really match the tone of 
what's being said so that because they they kind of honor that flow yeah um i think when i was new as an interpreter i was just like a like a bit of a soldier um, and I was I had a very regimented tone which n may not necessarily have been the tone of the conversation which meant that people focus on you like you're a third party in the conversation mm. you're a third person in the conversation also part of it rather yeah. than being the conduit through which it flows yeah yeah does that make sense that does make sense mm. in that different nature of the of the conversation mm. with you know and that flow that you try and generate do you think there's do you think it's a more mindful conversation because of that? Because people have a chance to sort of, when the interpreter is speaking, they have a chance to think and stop. Mm. Do you think that's the case or is it not really the case? Yeah, I think um, it depends on the scenario, um, depends on the person. So I think people have to choose to be mindful or not. And so for example, um, just to give you an example, I did a court case recently where the witness um, he wasn't even the accused or anything like that. He was a witness for the prosecution. And he was extremely agitated and the, and the subject matter was so personal to him that he, would, he wouldn't be able to control himself. And that particular way of speaking in a courtroom in a witness box can sometimes turn magistrates or judges off um, the person. I mean, or can sometimes be seen to do that even if they don't because I'm sure that people are very impartial, but it's just a, a perception. Yeah. And so the, the law, his lawyer um, insisted that he speak through the interpreter, which was me on that day, because that would force him to pause. Mm. Um, and he wouldn't be able to escalate in that way. Yeah. So it's a, it can, some, can sometimes be used as a strategy yeah. by people. Um, but other times I found that it, just, um, it also just frustrates people. So because yeah. they, they can't get through what they need to get through in the amount of time they expect to get, get through it in, um, yeah, it actually has the opposite effect. So that's why I say I think it's a choice. Yeah. Mm, people have to consciously choose that, you know, this is how I'm going to use the situation. Yeah, that makes sense. Mm. Yeah. So when, we, when, we, when you first talked about being here as well, you mentioned about the international film festivals and multiculturalism. Yeah. And just uh, even what you've touched on there, it seems like you do have a bit of a unique perspective on multiculturalism in Australia. Do you want to, <laughs> I mean, you, I think you said, yeah, you really like the idea of it. What, what does that idea mean to you for starters? Yeah, um, the idea of multiculturalism? Yeah. Wow. Um, to, me, uh, to me, it's actually, um, this is going to sound, this might sound a little bit cliched, but to me, it's, it's, the very fundamental notion that we're all one. Um, I think multiculturalism is is a, it should be a celebration of mm. of um, of almost like the way we celebrate nature when we go to a park and we see different flowers, yeah. or different trees, or different animals, or you know, we we it should be it should be something that is an expression of beauty. And I think um, if, if we all kind of really, really sort of strip everything back, um, and I think a lot of yoga practitioners will say this, a lot of other people will say this as well, a lot of religious leaders might say this too, that um, at, at our essence, we're all one being. We're all, we've all come from one, one being. And so m multiculturalism to me is, is, is actually an expression of creativity and beauty. Yeah. That's what it is for me yeah. um, at, its, at its core. Um, 
And I mean, but I've seen how it can it can get get manipulated and it can get turned into something that it's not. And there can be rhetoric over time or place that changes things. Yeah. And I guess I constantly try to bring it back to what I believe it to be, yeah. which is that very thing: creativity and beauty. Yeah, mm. that's a great description. Mm. Um, yeah, different expressions of the of the one thing. Yeah. Are, are, yeah. yeah different ways of looking at the one thing I really like that yeah um, and I guess you've got you don't have a Chinese background I take it no 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 um, so I was uh, my father is uh, has Indian heritage yeah and my mum um, has sort of so my father has South Indian heritage hence my darker skin color and my mum has North Indian um, heritage so she's got a little bit more of your skin color actually yeah and um, um, Mum was born in Malaysia and Dad was born in Singapore. Yeah. Um, my brother and I were both born in Singapore. Yeah. And we grew up, um, and Singapore is a multicultural society, but it's majority Chinese. Yeah. So we've got 80% of the population is Chinese. And the rest of the population split between Malays, Indians, and Eurasians. Eurasians being sort of a mixture of Europeans and Asians. And, um, um, and now lots of expats coming through and also um, lots of foreign workers from different parts of Asia coming through as well. Yeah. So yeah, it's become a bit of a melting pot of cultures now, I, like a lot of the world has actually. Yeah. A lot of the developed world anyway. Mm. It sounds like you've got, you've had exposure to an incredibly broad range of cultures there and yeah. yourself, yourself as well. Yeah, even to, from I guess north and south of India. Are incredibly diverse. Yeah, and then yeah, they are. I, I haven't personally actually spent much time at all in India, apart from the work that I do with the Global Women's Project, which has taken me to Nepal. Yeah, but um, like in in Singapore, and actually having, I guess, coming from a family that has that as part of our heritage, even though we're a bit more distant from it than may, maybe other families might be. Yeah, um, yeah, you're right. It does. It does have a. But I have had some exposure to lots of different peoples and languages. And yeah. As a result of that, and English has had to be the, has been the uniting language in Singapore. Um, that's the language that that's the main language and the language that everyone speaks. So, compared to a lot of my interpreting clients, coming here was a lot less of a challenge. Yeah. For me, yeah. because English was my main language. I mean, I must say though, the accent differences are extraordinary. In Australia. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> for people that were born here? For, yeah, for people who ca who've come from overseas to, yeah. to come here and, yeah. you know, the accent, the Australian accent. Mm. So that ties in pretty nicely, you know, mentioning the Global Women's Project as well, because that's how yeah. we met through... That's right. ...through um, Carmen, who we spoke to, I spoke to a yeah. couple of weeks ago. Yeah. Um, what's your role with the Global Women's Project? What do you do? So I, um, I'm a director, and so a board director, and um, I chair the board. So my role is basically to, as we, we start to sort of become a little bit more, uh, to grow and to, to become an older organization, um, to make sure our governance ducks are lined up in a nice, neat row. Yeah. And also to, um, to c connect the organization um, up with whatever, you know, whatever potential partners I can. Um, and general oversight and supporting the work that Bryony, who's our CEO, and Carmen do in whatever way I can. Um, 
Yeah, and also um, obviously coordinating the board. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So those are my roles. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That sounds. That sounds like quite a a big role. Yeah. Um. Yeah, it is. I. Yeah. I. I guess there's a part of me that sees it as. Um, as kind of letting other people shine. Mm. <laughs> so I think that's what a. That's what like you you facilitate the the shining of others. I think each person at the Global Women's Project actually has a massive role, just very different from the others. So I actually see um, my role as certainly equivalent to everyone else's. It's just that it's got a particular title that lends itself to being thought of as being, you know, commander in chief or whatever you're going to call that. Yeah. But but in actual fact, I reckon that if not for the fact that Bryony and Carmen and the rest of, and, and the board members and our CFO Betty, if not for the fact that they command their spaces, there's absolutely no way that it would run. Yeah. At all. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Maybe for people that haven't listened to Carmen, do you want to give just a brief um, overview of what the Global Women's Project does as well? Sure, okay, so the Global Women's Project is a women-led um, organisation. We're domiciled in Melbourne. Um, we have um, international partners, so we're an international development organisation. We've got partners in ne uh, Nepal and Cambodia, they're women's, uh, a women's foundation and a women's uh, community centre group. And um, we these, these partners of ours actually support um, women who are in vulnerable situations or uh, or take take on pot potentially preventative measures to um, support women to prevent them from becoming vulnerable yeah. and they're in some of the most difficult and impoverished regions and um, regions that are hit with natural disasters and various areas so the need is huge yeah. and a little bit goes a long way so that's what um, th that's what our international partners do and they're at the core of our work so we're very much focused on our international partners to ensure that we're not actually trying to you know tell them what to do but in actual fact we're doing what they actually want want and need yeah, yeah. Um, and that's really important to us um, and what, what we provide as a group um, is technical assistance um, vocational Ed, like for vocational education and support, so including women's leadership opportunities in those areas. So I think the idea, and you might have heard this saying before, is not to just throw a fish, but to teach a person how to fish. Yeah. And that's the idea of like exponential impact, and that's what we're hoping to achieve as we go along. So we've got um, some really talented people in the organization that have the skills and the passion the passion is so crucial yeah. and the energy to actually go in and really genuinely investigate what needs to happen and what the what they desire to happen yeah. and then to really articulate it well uh, enough to get support for it internally and externally yeah so that's essentially I guess an overview of of what the Global Women's Project does. Yeah, mm. yeah, it's cool. If yeah. Carmen, I think, spoke about it a bit as well, so people are interested in hearing a bit more, they can flick back and listen to her. Yeah. Um, mm. So I think when we spoke on the phone as well, you know, you, I mean, the things you mentioned earlier about um, ensuring that the governance is in place and connecting them with partners, what, what was your background that's enabled you to, you know, be really skillful and um, 
and uh, be able to bring that to the Global Women's Project. What were you doing before that? Yeah, yeah okay, so, um, so for the last, um, let's see, until May of this year, I worked in uh, what's called environmental social governance. And it's this very specific sort of niche area within the investment world. And actually, I shouldn't say it's niche because it's becoming much more, much more mainstream now than it used to be. Yeah. And it's the area of responsible investment. And so I held two roles in the last year and a half. One was um, with the Australian Council of Superannuation Investors. And I held that simultaneously with um, an, a role with the um, UN-backed Principles for Responsible Investment. And that's headquartered in London. And Axie is headquartered in Axie being the Australian Council of Superannuation Investors. This is headquartered in Melbourne. Yeah. So I was based in Melbourne um, and just uh, doing research and on various things, including the reporting practices of top-listed companies, because our members, the members of Axie, are, are institutional investors, so like your superannuation funds. And um, they have large investments in some of the top-listed companies in Australia and overseas. And what they would hire us to do is to actually have, a, have, a, have conversations with boards of directors of these top-listed companies to discuss anything um, pertinent to environmental, social and governance issues that, were, that either were risks or opportunities for, for investment and, um, and to kind of nudge things closer to a, a, a better outcome for everyone, including the profit outcome. Yeah as well as the planet outcome. Mm. So that's what, uh, that's what we were doing at Axie and with the UNPRI, what I was doing was um, coordinating the Australian network. So all of the um, signatories to that group um, and the UNPRI operates on seven principles and those principles all relate to including environmental, social and governance considerations into investments. And so we're talking about billions and millions and billions and sometimes trillions of dollars, depending on which superannuation funds you're talking about. Yeah. And um, where, because it's such a, the well, it's, it's where the wealth of the world is located. So where that gets, how that gets applied, yeah. makes a huge difference in issues um, that are of concern to people and planet. So, um, so with the with that role of being the UNPRI Australian Network Coordinator, I was interacting a lot with um, different funds um, in Australia and different um, environmental social governance professionals within those funds, sustainability professionals, corporate social responsibility professionals, um, boards of directors, trustee directors um, of superannuation funds. And um, oftentimes I was kind of be, um, I was kind of responsible for, for getting people together for collaborative education and sharing events, but also co collaborative engagements globally. So that would mean I'd be sitting on a call with, about, uh, with people from about four different continents and we'd all be working out, for example, how to engage with, um, with companies within each of our regions yeah. in a consolidated way on any specific issue that was of concern, whether it might be tax evasion or um, or uh, carbon emissions or human rights um, issues within particular communities where certain companies were having operations. Um, yeah. So, so yeah, it it was really varied and really um, but a really um, interesting set of roles to have that uh, had me connect with a lot of different people. Yeah. Yeah. Um. I'm fascinated by this because, as you say, like the 
the amounts of money are extraordinary yeah. that we're talking about. Yeah. And one of the people I've spoken to recently was Mark Daniels at the Social Traders, and he mm. talked a lot of you know. I don't know if you know them. Yeah. yeah. And he talked a bit about, you know, social, this idea of social procurement and how, you know, if corporates and governments just spent a little bit of their procurement dollars on social enterprises, the good that that can actually engender. Mm. And um, I mean, how, I guess, how successful is that kind of work? Like how, how influential were you and, you know, the people you worked with at steering corporates and encouraging them to, to be mindful of yeah. those type of principles, environmental and social principles? I think anybody who goes into this particular field, because it's highly institutionalized, knows that it's a slow burn. It's a large ship and yeah. it's it, it will take a long time and every and you feel sometimes that like you're you're only you're making a tiny, tiny dint in what's a massive, massive issue. Um, and so I think levels of success are very difficult to measure in that sense. But what I've noticed about um, the field is that it's imperative. If you've ever seen movies like The Big Short, for example, yeah, it's imperative to keep the pressure on, to to ensure that people are aware that these things are being thought about, and that these things are like to to make sure that that voice of advocacy for the things that matter are, are is heard in those particular spaces. That's really important, I feel. But one of um, one of the things I really struggled with. Um, in that space was dealing with the fact that unlike something like the Global Women's Project, I could not see the impact immediately. Yeah. And I think any any person who is in that space has to deal with that. Yeah. Like you oftentimes can't see the impact immediately yeah. of what you're doing and you can't attribute it uh, like totally as well to what you've done. It could be <laughs> yeah. a myriad of factors that have yeah. led to that particular outcome. Yeah. If you're, you know, completely honest about it. Yeah. So, um, so I think it's in, in that field as well, in the field of uh, institutional investments, responsible investment and environmental social governance, it's very easy to get into a place where you feel like the work, you're, the work that you're doing doesn't matter. But in actual fact, um, if anyone steps back and actually looks at it and, and sees what it takes sometimes to, to create a, a small mental shift, which in somebody in a position of power to execute a particular outcome, and then, and then, if another mental shift happens on top of that one, in a, at another point in time, and another one, and then another one, you might actually eventually reach your outcome without actually realizing that the impact that you had at the very beginning. Yeah. And I've actually seen that, um, to, to to some extent, happen a few times now. And I've had the privilege of actually convening a couple of uh, really extraordinary panels on things like workplace mental health, to to showcase how. Um, how much investors actually care about this issue mm. and which then had a cascading effect because when investors care about something suddenly it starts to trickle through um, it trickles through first in the reporting because people want to to put put they want to make sure that what's publicly facing looks very sound which actually makes perfect sense and it also trickles through within and, and reporting then generates when when companies report on something I'm, I'm i believe this some people don't but i believe that when companies actually start to report on a particular issue it it almost just the just the act of having to report on it then creates uh, a little bit of momentum within internally on actually making that issue work yeah and work for everybody yeah mm. yeah I get what you're saying. I can understand where people would be skeptical about that as well. You mm. know, you can do the whole, I mean, the greenwashing stuff and yeah. certainly spin it in a certain way. But 
Mm. I think what you're saying is even if that might be happening, it's still forcing people to think about stuff that they might not necessarily be thinking about at yeah. all. Yeah, and that's yeah. why I think there's a place for many stakeholders, not just the investors. I think investors have a certain level of influence, but um, at the end of the day, NGOs who investigate um, what's actually going on um, behind the scenes um, and other players, academics, um, who do mountains and mountains of peer-reviewed research on different things, and um, individuals, actual employees, um, and boards of directors and executives, they have to be champions all throughout the, all throughout each stakeholder group yeah. for a particular thing for it to actually, for, for us to actually see change. Yeah. Mm, and I think, I, th I think that's, that's the way the field works at the moment. Yeah. And it's quite appropriate. I was actually, last year I spent the year on a group called the Attorney General's Department Working Group on Human Trafficking and Slavery in Supply Chains. And that's a group that was convened by the Minister for Justice. Um, and the Attorney General's Department uh, ran that group. And we, we met for a year, about once a month or twice a month. And when, when it came to actually drafting plans, it was a bit more frequent. But our mandate was to um, develop potential um, policy directions or certain implementation plans that government could use as a whole of government to address issues of human trafficking and slavery in supply chains, whether locally or abroad. So that could include whether it was um, corporate supply chains, like um, like a, like a, manufa a manufacturing company that had workers that were um, that were in that were going through all sorts of issues overseas. Um, or it could include um, the Australian Defence Force. Where do their socks come from? <laughs> yeah. Where do their uniforms come from? Who makes them? Yeah. Um, or it could include um, garment workers in, you know, some of the some of the places that we've heard about a lot in the news in recent times, like Bangladesh and Cambodia. Yeah. Yeah. Um, conflict minerals that go into mm. our electronic devices. So. Like it covered off a whole range of things, but our job essentially was to come together as a multi-stakeholder group, and we were represented by all the stakeholders I mentioned earlier. Yeah. Um, come together to actually work out options for how the government as a whole could actually potentially handle that situation. Yeah. So um, it was, yeah. It, I think what probably one of the most rewarding experiences of my of my career in that in that area was actually being part of that and yeah. being an investor voice on it. And was it rewarding because of the contribution you made or because of the, the collective voice that came out of that? Both. I yeah. think the collective voice that came out of that, the contribution is yet to be seen because right now the plans are being considered. So there's no, um, there's no outcome yeah. at this stage. But um, the collective voice coming together and the fact that it, the forum appeared as a result of, um, of the government taking action on this, the yeah. forum appeared. And because that forum appeared, we were able to put our heads together. And I think, and I've seen this with the Global Women's Project as well. When, when you get a group of people who have uh, varying skill sets, skill sets, put their heads together on an issue, you can actually get, get places. Yeah. And you can get places that surprise you. Yeah. And so I'm looking forward to, to being surprised. <laughs> yeah. But, um, you know, it's, it's hard to see where we're at at the moment with that one. Yeah. There is something really powerful in um, diverse skill sets and voices and cultures and coming together in one place under a, I guess, a, a common 
uh, idea or theme or mm. it may be even not a common idea just in the one place at the one time to see what magic comes of it because yeah. it, it's we um, w there's an intentionality that's required to bring groups like that together I think Absolutely. because it doesn't it doesn't typically happen day-to-day -day stuff you know we stick to the same people that we work with for long periods of time yeah. or our families or our friends so yeah yeah and that's why the push at the moment in the environmental social governance world for board gender diversity and executive management gender diversity is such an important and powerful thing yeah in my mind yeah um, because it, um, it doesn't happen by accident like you said we stick to our own and, but diversity and inclusion is one of the hallmarks of what makes us amazing. And it goes back to multiculturalism it again. It does, yeah. Um, it's all about recognizing the creative beauty in the whole. <laughs> and it's just, it's like my mind just boggles at how much we're probably missing out on. Yeah. Like for the richness of, our own, of my own experience here, because, you know, I read an article the other day that talked about, you know, the, um, the small number of, probably mainly male, 25 to 35 year old people that live in Silicon Valley that design probably 80% you know, of the tech that we interact with on a daily basis, wow. you know, and the design of the phone or the, the software or the, the Gmail inbox, you know, there's a mm. very, it's, it's a very select group yeah. of people that are having a, such a massive global impact and, you know, what we're missing out on how we interact with tech because of the uh, the narrowness of the voices that are that get to have a say in how it's designed mm. yeah yeah absolutely um, and that actually is one of the reasons why I really love the global women's project because that's exactly the sort of thing that it sets out to disrupt for want of a better word it sets out to what we set out to do at the Global Women's Project is to actually include those voices in places where they have traditionally been excluded yeah. and generate awareness around um, voices. I mean, we, we work specifically with women and our mandate is specifically women. Yeah. But, um, but diversity and inclusion is such a core value of the organisation that I wish um, I could turn back the clock now, knowing what I know from having been part of the board of the Global Women's Project to actually include, to actually work out ways of actually planting that, embedding that notion where I've been in, in the past, yeah. in a conscious way, in an intentional way, because I can see the fruit of it, yeah. if that makes sense. It does, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and I see it now in a way that I never saw it before. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, it's cool. It's a great, it's great, it's it's a great uh, path to be on, like this, because and and one of the reasons I everything that we've been talking about so far, diversity, multiculturalism, um, and all the even even music bringing people together, um, all of that, it's 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 kind of I feel like it's a lifelong challenge, and it's going to be a lifelong. Um, it's going to keep me occupied and not <laughs> bored, <laughs> if that makes sense. I think you're right. <laughs> For a long, long time. <laughs> Which is fantastic. Yeah. And it all comes back to unconditional love, if you ask me um, mm. what, what the core of it is. It all comes back to unconditional love. Yeah. Mm. And that's, gosh, we could spend a while talking about unconditional love. That's, um, that's a thought that's been with me actually over the past two years, but it's probably a different conversation. Let's not go down yeah. that path just at the moment. But yeah, it's, uh, that's a, um, 
Maybe we should, maybe, yeah. What, I mean, what do you mean by that, unconditional love? Talk about that. Wow, okay. Um, so, unconditional love is probably my, uh, the, the biggest challenge, I think, in, in my world. Yeah. Like, to actually, um, it's easy, it's not, it's not easy, but to love is one thing, but to actually love without conditions, without saying that you could be anything or do anything and you still have my love. I think that's a, a completely different level and a different ballgame altogether, which is why the word unconditional actually quite scares me quite quite a bit. Uh, yeah, me too. That yeah. said, I think my earliest roots of it come from the faith I was brought up in, love thy neighbour as thyself. Yeah. You know, and, and that, that's throughout any faith really. Um, and I think that's why there's such a place for spirituality in our world, regardless of what people think of, you know, where it's targeted. I think there's such a place for it because it's the voice that is willing to speak the word love in, in, a, in a setting that, that probably is where it sounds like something that's a bit too ethereal to talk about, mm. um, unless it's behind closed doors. Yeah. And yeah, and so, yeah, so for, for me, it's, it's really, really the core of everything. I don't know how to explain it any better than that. It's just so, um, like an, it's almost like a no-brainer, but at the same time, it's one of the hardest things. Yeah. Um, it's, it's in that wonderful paradoxical place. But it's the thing that I haven't met a single person who is, who is not inspired by it. Who's not, yeah. I had this interpreting occasion once where I felt like it, it really knocked me off my feet, the experience of unconditional love. And that was when I was at the Peter McCallum Cancer Center and I was interpreting for a lady I'd interpreted for many times before. There were about, there were meant to be two interpreters, um, two, two Mandarin interpreters hired at the same time, but for whatever reason, I was the only one that was there. And that meant that um, I had to run around to many different clinics at the same time and be in five places at once. And my, the patient that I had actually been allocated to, um, she saw me running around and I kept coming back to her and saying, I, I'm so sorry, I can't, um, you know, I can't, I can't be here right now because you would have seen the doctor by now if I had been here, but I'm so sorry that I can't because I'm running around. And um, she watched me running from clinic to clinic at the outpatients department. And um, as, as an hour went by, and passed her appointment time and I felt worse and worse. I knew how much pain she was in because of the treatment she was undergoing and how much she wanted to get out of there, um, just knowing her. She's an older lady. And, um, and finally, after an hour and a half, I came back to her and I, um, and I sat down and I was just, I was so ready for her to be really upset because this wasn't the way she should have been treated. Um, but she handed me a, a latte and she said, I've seen you running around. You must be really, really tired. Please have this. And I knew how much pain she was in. And that, for me, was a moment that just really knocked me off my feet because I was expecting a completely different response. And what I got just knocked me off my feet completely. Yeah, I've said that a few times now because it was, yeah. Sorry, yeah, there you go. got lost in that experience for a second. Uh, I get that. That's, but yeah, when, you, when you experience something like that, it's... It's, I think it's pretty hard not to be changed by it. Yeah. Yeah. And not to not to have your faith in humanity dial up a little bit by yeah. it. Mm. And so, so I guess having had experiences like that and having been the recipient of so much um, grace, if you, for, if you want to call it that, mm. um, I find it hard not to live a life that give that that tries to give that away. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. I think, um, I mean, and yeah, and it, I mean, it's, it's amazing to experience that. And I don't know if you've had experiences of where you've needed to give away unconditional love, where there is almost hate coming back your way, mm. you know, and, and no love or separation or, you know, rejection, you know, mm. have you, maybe that's a bit too personal to talk about, I don't know, but, it, you know, have you, have you, has your unconditional love really been tested? Been in, tested, in, yeah. yeah. Yes, it has, and most of the time I failed, and that's the truth of it. Yeah. Um, and I may not have failed outwardly, but I failed inwardly. So I have never, I don't, I don't believe that I have come across a situation where I was really up against it, um, particularly with people that were particularly difficult or that were, that I was a target of, or whatever you want to call it, or. Um, or people who perpetrate violence that I come into contact with on a regular basis, on a regular basis, as a result of the work that I do. Yeah. I find it incredibly challenging to to love unconditionally, um, and and but I know as well that if I do, something will happen that <laughs> that will be beyond what I can imagine. Yeah. So I give it my best shot. But I will admit that I, I haven't actually, I don't believe that I've actually been able to do it consistently um, with, with people that I've struggled with over time. Like I don't, I can't say that I've been able to apply that consistently. Yeah. yeah. I think that's a, that's a super honest, great answer too, because I don't, you know, I don't, I think that's the best we can do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That is amazing. So like to be trying to apply it consistently giving it a go is as humans as evolved as we are right now like that's mm. that's amazing yeah yeah I've come to the point where I, sh I think of it like a muscle yeah and I've seen you know I've seen some amazing people who actually have that muscle trained up really nicely and they can actually lift some serious weight yeah and you know and others that have you know not even attempted training that muscle and that's cool too I mean it's each person on their own journey right yeah um, I think I, I'd like to think that I'm somewhere in between. Yeah. Yeah. In the middle of your training. In the middle of my training. Yeah. And hopefully with a number of years to go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I think one of the easiest, I mean, one of the things that actually helps me in that training is to actually, and this is going to go into a different place again, which might be a little bit deep, but is to actually think of when I'm on my deathbed, what I would like to have, look, what I'd like to look back on. Mm. So actually, in some ways, to hold death close. Mm. Um, yeah. So if I was going to, if if I was going to pass tomorrow, um, how would I have wanted wanted to have lived today? Yeah. Uh, that helps me with with exercising unconditional love because I'd love for that to be the last thing I did. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. You know how you said about unconditional love that, you know, in practicing it, something amazing might happen or, you know, something that you can't even imagine. Mm. I think that's part of when I'm reflecting about my own practice of unconditional love. That's something that, that's the part of it, I think, that freaks me out the most. You know what I mean? That I don't know what's going to happen and maybe, maybe I want to be angry at this person for forever. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's, it's kind of, it's kind of comforting to be a little bit angry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. 
It's really comforting to be angry when it's deserved. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and when you were talking about your deathbed then and holding death close, it reminded me of something... Um, um, then uh, Victor Frankl ah. says as well in uh, Man's Search for Meaning. He says something along the lines of, you know, making... Making, deci- making a decision and acting as if it's the second time you've done it. Yeah, wow. You know, like, if, you, if you'd done this once and made a mistake, how would you do it the second time? You yeah, know, wow. So almost make the mistake mm. in your mind first and then do it the other way. Yeah. yeah. And that has a similar... It, reminded, you know, it just reminded me of that yeah. as well. Like, just taking, taking a step back and having a, a, yeah, a broader look at things. Yeah. yeah, and doing it in replay. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Mm. Um, yeah, there you go. I've got a couple of questions for you yeah. as we wrap up, but there's, before we do, I just wanted to, I think there's, so you're doing the interpreting now, you're studying now as well, is that right? Um, I'm working as a research assistant That's at right. Monash University, yeah. um, so I did my study before going into environmental social governance at Monash. Um, yeah under an amazing supervisor named Dr. Wendy Stubbs. I'm just going to give her a plug here because I think she's absolutely wonderful. Um, And um, so now I'm doing some research assistance work for her, um, which I do sometimes on project basis. Um, And it's all related to um, the the corporate sustainability field. So it's all loosely tied tied back to to what I've been doing over the last three or four years. And um, yeah, so we're working on a project at the moment where we're looking at B corporations. So you're... Your yeah. businesses that are both for profit and for purpose that have been accredited as B Corps, yeah. and um, we're doing some work on on uh, on understanding how partnerships and collaborations work between B Corps and and how it is that as a collective they may potentially be able to expand their influence. That I mean, each each has an influ- influence in their own right. Yeah. But how how are things going as a collective? So we sp- we're spending a fair bit of time interviewing some of the founders and CEOs of B Corps at the moment. Yeah. And um, yeah, and doing a little bit of research on that. It's the most interesting stuff. Um, and the impact that some people are having is just, I can't, yeah, I can't even begin to like, and fantastic ideas and the creativity and all of those wonderful things that come when people are willing to go for an adventure. Yeah. Yeah. And, and go beyond <laughs> where they've actually, where others might have stopped. Yeah. Yeah. That's th- yeah. That's the, the the field that we're playing in at the moment, which is really fun. Yeah, B Corps are relatively new. I think they are relatively right? new. Yeah. yeah. How how do you you know you've talked you've 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 had a bit of work, I guess, at um, influencing really senior and really powerful uh, groups and people in the corporate social responsibility stuff. And now I think B Corps. From what I understand, they're more nimble, smaller to medium mm. kind of enterprises a lot of the time. Yeah. How, how, uh, how much, I guess, hope do you have that the ability to affect things uh, through the B Corps is uh, maybe more, uh, more, uh, more positive or is, is it more likely to occur than, uh, you know, the, the bigger 
end of town or is yeah. are they complementary? Yeah. I actually like I think you hit on it in the latter. I think the complementary aspect is what I'm seeing more of at the moment, but yeah. I'm pretty new to, to it myself, to be honest. So I've only been doing this research for a few months. Yeah. And so I don't know everything there is to know about the B Corp movement yet. But from what I've seen so far, I feel that particularly in the partnerships that they form with uh, top-listed companies, as suppliers even, mm. um, or, um, and, that, and, or, and also what they do within their own spheres of influence, um, has a, that, the two have actually a complementary, um, what's the word, have a complementary to, to what is done top-down from an in institutional investment perspective. Yeah. And the reason that I say that is because, because we cannot, we cannot do without what people do in, grass, in the grassroots side of things because grassroots is where the innovation actually happens. And without that, you can't, like in, uh, from, from top-down, you can't engage effectively um, about what's possible because you because what's possible hasn't shown up if innovation hasn't shown up yeah so you can't actually if, if people don't have alternatives to turn to you can't actually force people down a particular path or influence them down a particular path sorry I should have said that not yeah. force, but yeah. um, so I, I see them as very much complementary more and more I see that there is no stakeholder that we can do without that's in the space at the moment. It's yeah. all actually a quite a great whole. Yeah. Um, n none of it is being done perfectly, but since when is anything ever done perfectly? Yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah. Progress over perfection. Yes, <laughs> yeah. progress over perfection. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's probably been the biggest lesson I've had to learn in, in, my, gen in my career yeah. up to, to today, progress over perfection. I think my darkest moments, and I have... I have left situations because I wanted perfection. Um, and all of the, the darkest moments I've ever encountered have actually been a result of the search for perfection. Yeah, right. And it's been, yeah, it's been, yeah, it's not worth it. Yeah. <laughs> it's all I can say yeah. <laughs> about that. <laughs> a shortcut. It's not worth it. So <laughs> the end. <laughs> uh, I'm intrigued. Like you have such a diverse and rich experience. I'm intrigued how you're going to answer this next question. Oh so okay. this is the one of the two last questions <laughs> that I asked. But it's, okay. it's about um, something that you'd like to be part of disrupting one day that you're not part of at the moment. So something yeah. you, you know you daydream about or you think maybe you know after I finish this I might want to get involved in that. Mm. I actually, hmm, this is going to sound but I actually feel um, that that the Global Women's Project is actually that thing. Yeah. So I don't actually have another one day. Yeah, sure. If that makes sense. No, that's fine. I yeah. never ever growing up saw myself involved in women's work. Never. Um, I, yeah, I just, I was brought up with a particular lived experience of what it is to... To, to, to be in this world as a woman um, and some of the things that you might face in, in that space and some of the inequalities you might be exposed to. Um, I 
never thought that, I, I guess because it's such a, such a fundamental part of your identity, you just live it, mm. that it never occurred to me until, until I hit a space where it suddenly made perfect sense. And I think that's how it will be for, for the next thing. If there is a next thing, it'll be, it'll be, it's not, it, it couldn't possibly occur to me until I hit the space yeah. where it suddenly becomes blatantly obvious. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's where, that, that's where, that's the next place to go. Yeah. 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 I actually, yeah, in all honesty, like, you, like, I have nothing but an empty sheet in my head when you say that. Yeah. Like, really a, a white canvas. Yeah. Yeah. It's good. Mm. Um... Well, last question then is about yourself and the podcast is called Subtle Disruptors and it's about people who are making small changes that have a big impact, the kind of changes that are accessible to anyone to make. And my question is, you know, what's a subtle or a small change that you've made in your own life that's had a big impact that's um, perhaps enabled you to be where you are today or uh, something that you're doing today? as well but yeah small impact that or small change that'd be interesting for other people to hear about as well mm. so um the small change that i've made and i've made this and i make this one often actually because i'm a natural i naturally go into a, a very solo place i naturally sort of go into my own space to actually get things done and the small change that i've made is to, to start catching up with people um actually start building community and start making sure that I go go as a team yeah. and it's it might sound blatantly obvious to some people but it's not been for me um, for me it's been it's been a real journey to realize you can actually take people along with you and you can actually um, yeah you can actually trust that 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 two is better than one or three is better than two or four is better than three um, and it's possible to actually find that. I think that's a and and I, I guess what I why I call it a subtle change is because it's not it's not like I'm it's not I'm going out and then suddenly trying to gather a whole bunch of people. But it's actually more that I'm having individual um, conversations at a time that feels right and being open to the possibility of not working the way I've always worked, which yeah. is flying solo. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's right. That's, that's it. Mm. Great way to finish. I guess this maybe is one of those conversations as well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hey, you never know. Hey. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Shirley. Thank Thanks you. Thanks for spending the time. That was really good. Really good to chat with you in this great place. Likewise. Yeah. Thank you. Hey, thanks for listening to this episode of Subtle Disruptors. I hope you got something out of it. I'd love to hear your thoughts on the show, including any suggestions you have for guests. You can get me on email through adam at subtledisruptors.com. And if you enjoyed listening and would like to be part of getting the word out about the Subtle Disruptors of Melbourne, a great way to do this is through jumping into iTunes and rating and reviewing this podcast. I'm Adam Murray, and I look forward to hearing about your own subtle disruption. Bye for now.